Welcome to Failing Forward. Kevin, can you introduce yourself for our audience today? I'm Kevin Starr. I'm head of the Mulago Foundation, and um, we are focused on scalable, high-impact solutions to the most pressing problems of poverty. And why is it important for us to talk about failure as a sector? Because we do it too much. We're talking today about your article, Don't Feed the Zombies. For folks who haven't had a chance to read it yet, can you give us sort of a high-level synopsis of what your argument is there? It's fundamentally, kind of use the zombies as a fun uh, on-ramp to the topic, but it's fundamentally about how we're failing to create a market for impact because funders like me are not accountable for impact. And so it's like having a an investment industry where no one is accountable for profit. It goes nowhere. And when you say impact, what do you mean? I mean a uh, verifiable material change in the world for the better that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And how do you think about measuring that? What are some things people need to do to even be able to tell if it's happening? They need to know what they're setting out to do. They need to pick the right metrics to actually capture whether they did it or not. They need to show a change with a baseline and an end line. And they need to make a, a persuasive case for attribution and as to whether that would have happened otherwise, you know, when we talk about the counterfactual. One of the things that we see at CARE, especially as we go more and more towards scale, is that it becomes harder and harder to say CARE is the only reason this happened. And in a lot of cases, that's not what we would want anyway. We work in partnership, we work with other organizations. So that attribution versus contribution question can be fraught. How do you think about some of the nuance and complexity there? It often is multiple parties contributing to the outcome. And I kind of think of maybe we'll evolve toward a portfolio approach where CARE, for example, has a bunch of things they've worked on over time. Uh, to change with other partners, but what's the overall batting average of those efforts if you actually say what you set out to accomplish and commit to it? Either that batting average says you're pretty good at it or pretty terrible at it, or it says you just cherry pick the easy stuff and somebody's going to have to look at that and have an opinion. And that's pretty rudimentary thinking so far on this by somebody who doesn't is not even remotely an expert. And I haven't seen a lot of great thinking on this yet. You said at the beginning, funders like you have to be accountable for impact. What would you say that they're accountable for right now? Very little. <laughs> say a little more about that. People like me can get fired for sleeping with the wrong person or saying the wrong thing or just being unlikable. And we can't cheat on the tax laws and we can't self-deal. And there, that's about the list. We have to follow the law, but we can spend money on any stupid thing we want. There's no uh, accountability within the culture of philanthropy. Most funders have no way of, of demonstrating their impact or being even privately accountable for it to their boards. When you think about what gets rewarded or what people are looking at, what are the kind of numbers you're usually seeing in reporting? The classic is reach numbers like, well, people reached or lives affected. These are sort of bogus 
vanity metrics that have no meaning until they're given weight by what actually happened to those people. I mean, that's like the biggest offender. And when you think about that idea of reach as something that's really distorting the market, there's a push for reach. How does that turn things into zombies? Tell us a little more about the zombies. So the the piece was almost inspired by this graph I saw from Max Roser about a study that these guys did exploring I think what they called the mystery of uh, ineffective giving. And they looked at what a bunch of randos picked up at Oxford University thought about a bunch of different interventions and whether how much they thought some of them were more effective than others. And they actually didn't give it a very big range, but these are ostensibly fairly well-informed, smart people. And then they looked, talked to a bunch of experts, and some of them were from that whole effective altruism camp. But anyway, they're thoughtful people. And those relative experts found a huge difference between the even the average intervention and the most effective. But what struck me so much about the graph was the average was really low. And then it tapered down to probably a lot of organizations are harming people. And then a friend of mine at the same time was railing about the, he, he's, he's somebody who, who works on tech with a lot of different organizations. And he was just railing about these zombie organizations that he said weren't interested in getting better. And I just thought about that. And I thought, well, somebody's, somebody's funding those. And those funders are actually un, um, almost certainly unaccountable in any meaningful way about their lack of impact or even harm. And that's why the sector doesn't accomplish anything near what it might. One example that I use often when I'm talking to people about the difference between reach versus impact is that if you wanted to have the highest number of reach possible, you could do something like say, from a drone, we're going to drop a bunch of pamphlets about COVID-19. And we're going to assume for every piece of paper that fell, a person got some information about COVID-19. And that, under some frameworks, would allow you to count a huge reach number, but it wouldn't change anything for anybody. Whereas you could also say on the other end of the scale, we know people are in crisis and they are, uh, one example we're seeing recently is as the Ukrainian refugees came over the border to Poland, they were having to pay rent in Warsaw. That's a lot more expensive than other places you might see in the world. And so for the same number of dollars, there's many fewer people who can get the difference they need in their life. And those are two extreme ends of the spectrum. But how do you think about pushing that weight away from the distortion of just pick the thing that will give you the biggest number. Well, I think if enough of us talk about this, eventually you'll look like an idiot just talking about reach metrics. You know, people will laugh at you. Like, what are you using that metric for? It means nothing. It'd be like saying in industry, oh, a million people have heard of our product or, you know, we got a million engagements on social media, except that actually nobody buys the product and they're going out of business. And we definitely see, at least in our own work, because CARE does a lot of this thinking about how do we genuinely report on impact, because that's the only way for us to get better, is to see what is working and what is not. Reach is generally in a precondition for impact. Somebody has to be involved in some fashion before okay. something changes in their life. And in the same way that nobody will buy your product if they've never heard about it, more people will hear about it that won't buy it. You do have to reach people before you can impact them, but you want those percentages to get higher. 
do stuff that works. I mean, it's really that simple. Do stuff that works and then get rid of the stuff that doesn't work. And you said just stop doing things that don't work. A whole part of this podcast, the reason it exists in the world is to say, hey, we did this and it didn't work. Don't do it again. That can be really challenging. What do you think particularly a donor's role is in incentivizing people and supporting people to stop doing the things that don't work? Well, don't pay for them. <laughs> that stops everything. And what about the times when the thing that we know doesn't work is the thing the donor really wants to pay for? Talk them out of it. Well, a lot of organizations push back and say that doesn't actually fit our strategy. We're not up for doing something that doesn't work. We know what you're hoping to accomplish. Here's an alternative. We know your problem, funder. You really want to create impact. You have this idea. We can show you that it was a good idea and somebody tried it, but it didn't work. And we've got this other thing. You know, no organization should knowingly do stuff that doesn't work for any reason whatsoever, ever. And how do you think about your role as a donor and other donors like you in surfacing, this is a thing we funded and it didn't work? You know, you have to be careful about that because everything needs to be in context. Like when we exit an organization, we don't make a big deal out of it. It's clear from our materials that we're not funding them anymore. But often it's for, for various reasons that we have a very specific exponential impact scale obsession. And that's not always, a lot of groups don't do that and a lot, uh, and, and they don't need to. There's some stuff totally worth funding that doesn't do that, but it's what we do. And so we expect a lot of failures. We just don't, we'll exit from an organization that has stupid failures where they just weren't paying attention and they let something go on too long. I mean, we like risk. We want to try risky stuff. And I don't even think of its failure if a smart experiment doesn't turn out like you expect it. And sometimes I find this celebrating failure stuff uh, is a terrible idea because often I look at them and like, that was a stupid fail and should not be uh, celebrated. Uh, nobody monitored. It went on too long. And it wasn't set up as an, it was experimental, but it was not acknowledged as such. And so it wasn't set up carefully. Yeah, it's something we see a lot is the difference between what you call a stupid failure and what we might say seemed like a good idea at the time, right? We had a lot of evidence that seemed like this should work. You look at the literature and the best practices, this all seemed like it should be a good idea. And then we ran the experiment and it didn't work. And yeah. those are the ones we're so anxious to try to put out there because they're the ones that are so easy to repeat because you, you could follow exactly the same path we did and say... Yeah, all the literature makes it look like this is a great idea because nobody wants to go that last step and be like, but it turns out it doesn't work. Yeah, I don't even think of that as a fail. Mm -hmm. I think of that as a smart thing to try that didn't work out. And when you think about changing that donor environment, you said before that you're hoping for a universe where somebody would get laughed at if they said, well, we're just going for a really big reach number and we're not paying attention to impacts. What needs to happen to get from where we are now to there? Well, yeah, it's funny because I did a Twitter thread kind of introducing that article. And at the end of it, I just said, I don't really know exactly how to make this happen. Um, this is just kind of a opening salvo. But we, we, have to, we have to change the 
Yeah, I hate articles that end up with, we must do X. And it doesn't really mean anything, but I think this, this is a genuine starting point. We, we, we have to figure out very specifically, how do you attach impact to the primary drivers of philanthropy, for example? So why do people give? They give to gain status. They give to assuage guilt. They give simply to experience and demonstrate generosity. You know, it's pleasurable to give. I don't know, there's probably some other big ones, but those are the biggest ones I can think of. Well, we just have to attach impact to all of them. Like you don't get to assuage your guilt unless the thing actually worked. <laughs> and then especially status, because I actually think that's one of the biggest drivers of philanthropy is status. So if you gave to some stupid thing that didn't work and you kept giving it or... um yeah, you made a big deal out of stuff that didn't work or you got celebrated for stuff that didn't work. That shouldn't happen anymore. It's harder to measure this. One of the reasons people do reach instead of impact is that reach is relatively straightforward to just go ahead and count people. Impact is harder and paying to measure impact is more expensive. How do you think about building that into the portfolio? Yeah, most organizations that are really high performing uh, probably spend typically about 10% of their budget on getting numbers, good numbers, because numbers are the only way we create a, a true shared reality unless we get to have the exact same experience. And even then, <laughs> you don't know what you're seeing without numbers. And so you should be measuring. And uh, the smart organizations, the one that evolve continually toward more success, they measure stuff. And they spend what it takes to do. And, you know, that's an, yet another reason why we continually advocate for unrestricted funding, because organizations should be encouraged to measure the impact and they should be able to have the resources to do so. And uh, often funders don't want to pay for it. And one of the things we see is that there's this push towards numbers. And numbers are incredibly important for us, but numbers will often tell us, did it work or didn't it work? And they won't tell us why. So we also have to invest in some of that qualitative where you do more detail about, okay, this community didn't experience an impact. Why not? What happened? And a lot of that has to come from more of the implicit knowledge and some of the other pieces. How do you think about putting that quantitative and qualitative together? We have a thing we call with our, with our fellows a behavior map, which says, okay, here's your idea. Okay, let's list out all the things that people have to do differently to get to impact in the context of your idea. Well, you can observe and measure all those things and create numbers that show you why the thing worked or it didn't, because protagonist X, right in the middle of everything, didn't do the thing that you thought they would do. And so the whole thing didn't work. And now you know why. And you've got to figure out, well, how do I make that actor able and willing to do behavior X so now this whole chain works? I don't see that many things that have to be purely qualitative. I mean, any, any information from an intentional observer, honest intentional observer is grist for the mill. But... A lot of things that people think can't have numbers on them can have numbers on them. 
I'll give you an example from some of our work. We had quantitative data that told us in a refugee camp right at the beginning of COVID, women's mobility was impacted. And we had a behavior map. We didn't call it that exactly, but we had a theory about why we thought that was happening. Um, and it was about needing masks and needing soap and needing education about how to protect yourself from COVID. And then we talked to women in communities and they said, no, no, my mobility is impacted because men think women's rights is causing COVID-19. And so they are stopping our mobility as a cure for COVID-19. Yeah. That turns our whole behavior map on its head, right? That means we need a different map altogether. And we only know that by talking to the honest observers who are living through the situation. So how do you think about making space for that? Talking to people continually is just an important part of everything. And you have to figure out great ways to do it. You know, we think that all design, all product development, and all investigation should be conceived and done in the middle of those you serve. And if you do that, you're usually going to find out the stuff you didn't know. We have an outfit we, we know and like called Appleseed. And Appleseed is about is sort of a behavior change consultant. But again and again, we see they go out to the field and they just hang out with people and they have their eyes open and they watch. And then they report on what's really going on. And it's so useful again and again. It's, it's, it's every bit as useful as their behavior change recommendations. It's just, oh, wow, we just sat there, went to the right place, talked to the right people, and saw what was really going on and can tell you. And then if it's really important to, to know, you can get some numbers to the thing you now are aware of. And that will help you shape a better way to do it. What is that interplay between that observation and people's lived experience? Because you could go out and collect entirely the wrong set of numbers if you're not actually with the people who are living through the problem. Even that has to be done in a systematic, structured, smart way. And if you think about what the space is, what you want it to look like five years from now, 10 years from now, what would be different? What would we see? Well, we'd see some people like me get fired for lack of impact. I mean, I really, I think that'll be such a great day when some major foundation head is just like, you know, CEOs get fired all the time because the, the returns on investment didn't look good and they're out. And I would just love to see one of us get fired explicitly for you spent a bunch of money and not nearly enough happened. And uh, also, you know, you gave me this idea on this podcast, you know, <laughs> the day reach metrics alone are ridiculed. That's a banner day. And I think it would start, we'd start seeing more stuff like that that would indicate that this really mattered. Actually, you know, here's the thing. Impact would start to take on the discipline of profit. Like profit doesn't just mean anything anybody wants it to mean. It doesn't mean activities. No one would ever say it meant activities. We do that for impact all the time. I see a page in a report, our impact, and it's a bunch of stuff they did. It's not what really happened. So even being more disciplined about definitions within this sector, like 
impact is a thing. It's been really well defined. And I came, you know, I, I defined it as simply as I could at the beginning of this conversation. And that definition actually works for us. Uh, there's more technical ones, you know, in the in the research world, but that's a pretty simple one. It's just an observed change for the better that was measured rigorously to show that it wouldn't happen otherwise. I think that analog with profit is a really good one. But the commercial sector doesn't just get to call anything it wants profit. And we have very strict definitions of reach and impact here at CARE. And it's basically what you said at its most simple version. Reach is the thing we did. Impact is that we have evidence of a measurable change. And yeah. there are standards for evidence. Yeah, so if, if reach isn't connected to evidence of impact, <laughs> again, my dream is that it gets ridiculed. So if you had one action step that moves us on that path towards the vision, for organizations like CARE, for organizations that are implementing in the world, what would it be? A public commitment to impact attached to a definition. I haven't really thought about exactly the question you asked, but I think that's the best answer I could come up with on the fly is, I think the first step is always just committing to it. You know, the minute you commit to impact, and a definition thereof, well, you're starting to be part of the solution. Most of the people I meet in the sector are really well-intentioned. Most of them are really smart. And you make that commitment to a de defined articulation of impact, you're gonna do it better, inevitably. And the same question, one action point that moves us on that path towards your vision for donors, what is that? Oh, it's, I mean, it's exactly what I just said, a public commitment to impact and some accountability. It's never gonna be the sort of structural accountability that you see in industry where you don't make any money, you go out of business. I often get the question, accountable to whom? And the first most important thing is of course, accountable to those we serve and then accountable to ourselves, because most of us are putting our ourselves literally in our lives energy into trying to do good. And we ought to be accountable to ourselves as to whether we're actually pulling that off. You know, I think of it as I'm accountable to my team. They're putting their heart and soul into this work. I should be accountable to them for the impact that we really create together as, as, the, as the person who gets paid to be the leader. And I'm accountable to my board. And then we have a circle of, of funders who we work with together, like in the Big Bang Philanthropy Group. I want to be accountable to them for Milago's impact so they can trust our recommendations on who to fund. And, and so it ripples out. That's how, that's how it starts. And because you brought it up and it's just such an important point, and I completely agree, that first accountability is to the people we say we're serving. What else do we need to be doing to make sure that is the first accountability and that's where we spend most of our energy? Well, we design what we do either based on proven stuff and disciplined implementation of same, 
with constant monitoring to make sure we're maintaining impact. You know, not an endless series of RCTs necessarily, but just something smart. When we try new stuff, we make sure that we're measuring it such that we can stop at the instant it really is shown not to work and that we really take effort to rigorously demonstrate the stuff that does work and then we rigorously make sure it goes somewhere i mean one of the one of the things that so frustrates me about this whole fascinating world of like development research is there's no apparent broad understanding that an idea needs an organization. Nothing goes anywhere without an organization being obsessed with taking it there. And so you do some study and expect it to just be uh, disseminated and turn into action. Uh, that's nonsense. It doesn't happen. If you could think back over the work you've done so far in this space, and is there anything you would change knowing what you know now? <laughs> I mean, I don't even think stuff I was doing five years ago makes any sense now. Was, you know, some of it, it's, you know, one of the things that's been so fun about getting to do Mulago is it's an obsession with iteration toward excellence. And we're always changing stuff, which makes actually going back in time and evaluating our performance hard because five years ago, 10 years ago, we were doing something really different. You know, here's, here's just an example that jumps to mind. So we wanna see stuff scale up and that usually means almost in all cases, it needs to scale up via government or via the market. And because governments are the ones that really serve the needs, deliver services to the poor, we're mostly focused on stuff that scales up via government. But we don't want to neglect the market when there's something that actually does work. My board over the time I've worked with Mulago has been mostly bankers, very, very smart investors. What do we do as a philanthropic organization to to make for-profit ideas work. And so I used to hate the idea that we might give an organization money and then somebody down the line actually makes money off of that, basically makes money off of our having given them money. My thinking on that has completely changed after learning how hard it is to get a for-profit in Africa actually worthy of the commercial capital that'll actually make it scale up. And to make a, a long story short, we realized that the route to scale for an idea in the market is that lots of businesses eventually do it, which means it has to be profitable because who, who wants to start a non-profitable business? But the search for profit usually takes it off poor, away from the poor. And so we have to find models that are where profit and impact are inextricably aligned. And those are these perf these gems that we can't afford to lose. So Malago is now saying there's this desert they have to cross to be worthy of commercial capital. We should give them some free money to help them 
get further across that desert because what we are about is philanthropy creating impact at scale. And that is a complete change from what I thought as little as five years ago. That's a great example of that question about partnership and contribution versus attribution. So when we think about scaling through government, there's a lot that we do, but there's a lot the government has to do. And there's a lot that's involved in how they're working and what their enabling environment is and how those pieces fit together. In that kind of journey to scale where there are so many actors engaged, how do you think about contribution versus attribution? Almost always every actor could be looking at their piece in the overall effort and be able to measure something that shows whether they're achieving it or not. Very rarely do I talk to somebody doing anything, well, that's that's well thought out at all, where there isn't something that could tell you if my piece of the of the work is working or not, is really contributing to a larger theory of of what's going to happen. Is there anything you want to say on this podcast that I haven't given you a chance to say yet? If we aren't accountable for impact as funders, we'll never have a market where resources flow efficiently to those who best are best able to create change and flow away from those who are not. If that remains the case, we'll always be a sideshow. And we'll always be achieving only a fraction of what we could otherwise. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. No, that was super fun. Thank you.